Welcome to the Silver Screenings, a podcast celebrating those movies in their 25th anniversary. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Brian Pyrus and Matt Peterson as we kick 2024 off with 1999's The Matrix. Welcome to a new year, guys. Hope uh, everybody's having a nice start to this festive season and uh, enjoying some uh, uh, winter weather. Uh, it's kind of uh, getting cold here in Minnesota, where a couple of us are recording, and then uh, down in uh, Tennessee. Is it uh, you guys getting blasted there, Brian, with uh, some some uh, bad storms? Um, we got about four or five inches of snow over the last 24 hours, and we're going to get into the single digits tonight, which is very rare for this wow. this part of the country. So it is cold, and my house is like from 1950, and I'm I'm really noticing how poor most of the insulation is. So. <laughs> A little drafty. Well, I'm appreciating the nice insulation because we are below zero uh, right here, but uh, we are not getting that much snow. So You've got that going uh, for you. Yeah, exactly. Got something going for us here in Minnesota this year. Well, let's jump right into it. We uh, we have a big one for 1999 here to kick us off. The Matrix opened up on Easter weekend along with 10 Things I Hate About You. And uh, I'm sure you guys will be surprised to hear this. It blew it right out of the water. It opened up at number one, took in $41 million over the holiday weekend there, and uh, wound up actually staying on top for another three weeks after that, uh, for three weeks total, excuse me, so not uh, three weeks after that, but two more weeks. Uh, so did extremely well uh, at the box office there. With a budget of about $65 million, it wound up grossing worldwide $467 million. So quite the little profit margin there for Warner Brothers uh, as they released this unheard of sci-fi film by a couple of small-time directors, the Wachowskis, who hit it big and... Uh, revitalized the the career of Keanu Reeves and kicked off a whole bunch of other people, Carrie Ann Moss. Uh, I would say, in many ways, I think this also really introduced Lawrence Fishburne to the mainstream audiences. He'd been working a long time, had done a lot of work, but I don't know that he was a, a name that people probably recognized until after he played Morpheus here. So huge movie and a big, big hit uh, critically as well. Won four Oscars, uh, upsetting Star Wars Episode One, which... No doubt we are going to talk about some point this year. Uh, <laughs> I'm seeing uh, shaking a head right there. Uh, but we are going to talk about that. I'm sorry. It's going to happen. It's fair. Uh, so it was a huge, huge phenomenon and continues 25 years later, I think, to still be big uh, in light of all the merchandising, the sequels, the Animatrix spinoff, and all sorts of other fun things. So, Brian, you picked this to kick off 2024 with our look back at 1999. Tell us why this movie is such a fun, exciting, and enjoyable ride. Well, um, that's what I'm here to do, Nate. Um, so I, I, you know, have a soft spot in my heart for for movies like this in general. I'm a big fan of just good science fiction movies, and this is a great one. Um, it is uh, an original film. You know, it's not based on any comic book or pre-existing franchise, which is, I guess these days seems rare, maybe was less rare in 1999. But it's one of those movies that you see and you don't really know what you're going to get into and it just kind of, it starts with a bang and it sucks you in and it's like, what the hell is going on here? And as it, as it unfolds and you learn more, it just becomes more and more fun as it goes. And you and it's, I, I like how it centers around uh, 
Keanu Reeves' character, Neo, and, and you learn as he learns, and you go on that journey with him, and, of course, at the end, he's, he's Superman or whatever, but you kind of feel like you're there with him the whole time. And it's, as you said, it's just tons of fun. Uh, it's got some ideas to it, so it's not just a dumb action movie. Although in, in the ways in which it is a dumb action movie, it's a really great dumb action movie. Um, and um, it's just, it's so much fun. It's so enjoyable. Uh, people taking themselves very seriously in it, but also seeming to have a pretty good time. And um, I love it. It's a great movie. I think back to what you're saying about the fact that you didn't quite know where it was going. That I remember very much when I when I went to see this on the opening weekend. Uh, the marketing had done a good job of not giving away too much of it, giving you a, a real feel for the aesthetic. I think that's why so many people went to it right away, because it looked different and looked very interesting. Uh, but... They didn't really tell you much, and I think it was one of the big ta- one of the big taglines for the movie was "What is the Matrix?" And I think at the time, the the word itself really wasn't in the lexicon, right? Mm-hmm. So it, just even the title was an intriguing title. Uh, so that was something as I watched it that I remember it, it did have that real sense of who is who, what's what, uh, and you got introduced into the intrigue and the mystery of it right away. Matt, as we look back on The Matrix and its influence from the last 25 years, what do you think is its big influence 25 years later? Oh, gosh, there's so uh, so many to mention, actually. I, I mean, uh, revisiting this, that was one of the things that resonated so strongly was just how how much this film has just entered the public consciousness at this point, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 25 years old, but there's so much in it that people just kind of take for granted and even use in day-to-day conversation without even realizing probably that it came from the matrix and just the concept of the the red pill, blue pill. I mean, that's been co-opted into politics, unfortunately, but I I think just on a higher level, just this idea of, you know, being able to step outside of traditional systems and, and kind of look, uh, looks through the looking glass uh, the, the other way. Just just that concept, that idea, is something that's been, I, I think, really put into the uh, the public consciousness thanks to this film, and especially with, with the rise of uh, artificial intelligence now, too. There's, there's kind of a whole other level of um, prophecy <laughs> that seems to be arising from this picture. So I, it'll be interesting to see how I think this film will continue to resonate uh, especially over the next few years with, with the techno- technological leaps we're, we're definitely seeing. Uh, but just to my own you know experience seeing this film, Brian, I, I think I saw this at your house the first time, didn't I? I saw this on DVD, if I remember. I didn't see it in the theater. Okay, that makes sense because I would have got it on DVD immediately, and I probably tried to get you to go to the theater with me, and maybe the, maybe the R rating was a tough <laughs> sell at the time. I don't know. Maybe that was it, but uh, you had the nice, large, you know, larger screen TV, the surround sound. So uh, I remember quite vividly seeing this at your house, and uh, it made a big impact. I mean, I really hadn't seen anything like it. Uh, anime is a huge influence here, though. You know, and, and this is pretty much pretty much a live action anime. Definitely, is what this picture is, and mm-hmm. I think if people go into this familiar with anime, they'll see a lot of familiar visuals and, and even camera moves and even the visual effects, you know, bullet time. We think of 
of that being really groundbreaking visually. It's something that had been present in anime and in pictures like Ghost in the Shell and Akira. So that's another thing that really resonated with me was just that, that Japanese anime influence here. Well, Matt, my parents were probably, some from the sounds of it, my parents were a lot less uh, concerned about my well-being <laughs> and my moral integrity because my dad and I went and saw this in the oh. theater, actually. He took me to it. Uh, so right there, opening day, R-rated movie. Let's nice. go, son. Uh, but uh, I remember, uh, you, I'm glad you mentioned, Matt, the influence of anime, which I think is another thing. This kind of, anime was becoming more prominent, but it, I mean, even now today, it's still by far and away not... Uh, not something I think most people are paying attention to, but its influence has become really widespread, and this is a big part of why. The thing that I remember right away being taken with in the film was its cinematography. Bill Pope did just great work on this uh, in terms of the way he's using lights, shadows, the compositions. Uh, I, I was probably a little more taken with that than the special effects, which became parodied so fast that they kind of lost their power, yeah. the the fun and unique element of the bullet time and some of the uh, wire uh, uh, stunts uh, because it was so quickly imitated and replicated and then also satirized. Uh, it became almost a parody of itself when you watched it on repeat viewings for me. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the cinematography, it was always just so gorgeous. And I, I still really think it is uh, one of the best-looking science fiction movies. Although, are either of you guys annoyed the fact that they've changed the color timing on this on all subsequent releases? Like, the original DVD, it's not as green as it is now. This is something that bothers me, and no one ever seems to talk about this, that the, the version that's available for streaming, or if you're getting, like, a Blu-ray or HD, 4K HD, uh, you are, you're not seeing the original color timing of the cinematography. It's, it's much greener yeah. than it was, and I, I think the original color timing is much better. Uh, I don't know if either of you are, are familiar with that or recognize that. Yeah, I definitely noticed that with the new transfers. And I, that seems to be a big thing with a lot of new 4K transfers is just this green or teal push on a lot of the color timing. Well, I think they did it because they wanted to blend it more with the sequels because mm. the sequels had a different color timing. I think they wanted to make it seem like this is what they were doing all along is what I is what I. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, but But I do remember the original color time being much much more naturalistic, much kind of flatter looking. I honestly don't remember. I watched this on Max the other day for this podcast. So um, you know, my I do have the D V D I think still, but yeah, but, you know, it's 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 not H D, so it's never coming back out. <laughs> Oh, actually, I, I watched this on the DVD, even though I have the Blu-ray, and, and I also watched on the 4K for this. Nice. Uh, because I wanted to watch the original color timing. So I, I, I've held on to that old DVD just for this exact reason. That's strong work. But, you know, it's the, the look of the film overall, I agree with you that it's very good. But one thing that kind of stood out to me that bothered me a little bit watching it recently that I haven't even thought of necessarily before is... Uh, is particularly in the outdoor like city scenes when they're in the matrix, how generic most of it is. And I don't really like that aspect about it quite as much, at least on, on this viewing, I didn't like it. It was a little bit too generic, a little not visually appealing enough mm. to me. There's so many other interesting aspects to the visuals that maybe, uh, you know, it's not something that maybe it's a nitpick more than anything else, but I thought of it, whereas I have never thought of it before. 
I like the genericness of the of the city and everything because it makes it so I'm not really thinking, oh, I'm in New York or I'm in Chicago. I mean, I think it was filmed mostly in Sydney. Mm-hmm. So obviously, if I guess I knew Sydney well, I'd, I'd be recognizing it as Sydney locations. But the fact that it's generic, I think, actually works at get, uh, works at four. This idea that you're in a computer program, yeah, that um, just generic compu- uh, city. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a Sims city. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. I actually kind of like that watching it right now. Uh, the fact that it doesn't have real obvious landmarks. And you're not trying to associate it with those things. It makes me actually buy into it more um, because the idea is still, I think, ultimately very much a far-fetched idea. I mean, realistically, I, mean, I, I don't see AI advancing this way or us having a war with them. Or, by the way, I don't understand exactly how you scorch the sky. I'm not... Well, it's not like the sky is like an actual surface to be scorched. But anyways, <laughs> uh, so that that part has always bothered me in this movie. Um, I also did feel, though feel really quite reassured right now because Morpheus says that in the early 21st century, people are in such harmony. They celebrated themselves and they gave birth to AI. And I thought, well, that's not happening. So uh, this probably will never come to pass. We don't have to worry about being in the Matrix. Well, I was thinking that if, it, if you know, AI does somehow take over and they decide to use us as batteries and you know, give us like a dream world to live in. I mean, you know, that's better than just turning us all into paper clips or whatever. So I don't know. This doesn't seem like the worst possible outcome. You're kind of preempting me here. Cause I wanted to ask you guys, do we watching this 25 years later, maybe have more sympathy for Cypher at this point? <laughs> yes. Uh, Joe Pantaleano. I, I was like, you know, when I look at what uh, you guys have, and especially when you see the sequels, you get to actually see Zion and everything. I go, maybe, Maybe the Matrix and having it keep be rebooted isn't such a bad deal compared to what the other options You get to have is. a juicy steak every day. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't want to live in Zion. All right. Well, let's jump into our Q&A here to go through some questions here looking back on this movie. So uh, our first question, the marketing executive question, what's the best tagline for this movie? This movie actually had a lot of taglines uh, for it. So a couple of the more prominent ones is... Uh, were free your mind, the fight for the future begins. What is the Matrix? The Matrix has you, and welcome to the real world. Uh, I don't know that any of them are all that particularly great. Although the the question of the what is the Matrix did kind of uh, again introduce the sense of intrigue or mystery to it. Uh, did either of you come up with a the other tagline you think might be better than those ones? Well, I, I just always like the, the Morpheus line. Um, it's in the trailer, too, but that, you know, no one can be told what the Matrix is. Um, what's that yours, Brian? <laughs> yeah, that you have to see it for yourself. Yeah, or just the first part of that line, you know, I think would, yeah. is a good tagline. And that's a line in the movie that just always sticks out in my head, that uh, just this idea that, Unless you experience the world outside the Matrix, you'll never understand what the Matrix is. Although, as a tagline for a movie, I like that you have to see it for yourself bit as well, because it's a movie that you should go see for yourself. It gets a little long, but yeah, it's, it's, it, yeah if you can fair. include it, it's nice. That isn't bad, yeah. I came up with, uh, just thinking about how it, ultimately it all comes back down to like individual choices, like Neo has to make a choice to believe in himself and all these things. So my, my tagline was make your choice. Kind of generic though. It is, but that was the best I could come up with. Like thinking for a pithy. Well, if it was like a, a poster with the red pill and the blue pill, then that would work. I think. 
Yeah, take. Yeah, for a re-release, it could be a good yeah. one, right? Take the take the red pill. I didn't even know that was a thing. I don't think this whole red pill whatever uh, until I think the most recent Matrix movie came out, and they stuck with it. And I think people were surprised maybe that they stuck with the red pill blue pill dichotomy on account of whatever red pilling means. Which we I don't want to get. I don't know what I don't. Don't even tell me what it means. I still don't really know. <laughs> Aside from it, just means hey, you... not understanding what things are. I mean, it, might, it seems like you're a little bit like Will Smith being pitched this movie to star in. <laughs> okay, now we have to talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, yes. Yeah, so, so, Brian, uh, fill us in on the the. As I think a lot of people might know, this was offered to Will Smith to play Neo, and uh, he passed on it to make uh, Wild Wild West. Also, guaranteed to be discussed in uh, the 2024 Silver Screenings Pod. Uh, so, but give us a little background there about what was, uh, what was the offer to Will Smith? Well, yeah, I don't know if there's a whole lot more to it than that, but he apparently read the script or maybe an early draft of it and just, he said he didn't really get it and, and basically he didn't want to do it. Although what was part of that also that Val Kilmer was going to play Morpheus? Uh, yep. So can either of you see that? I mean, either one of them in the film? I, I can, I can see it. I can definitely see it. I don't think it's a good movie with that, actually. I think it doesn't work. I think Keanu Reeves is a very flat actor, and that's what you need, because he needs to be our avatar into this world. And I think the flatness of him and the lack of kind of emotional response that he gives really actually winds up helping the performance and helping us enter into the world. Uh, so I think Will Smith would have been too much of a an actor. Too, too right? expressive. He would have been really trying to do things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know that it works. I, I could see Val Kilmer as Morpheus. Yeah, um, I could sure. see that more easily than I could see Smith as Neo. I wouldn't take Val Kilmer over Lawrence Fishburne, though. No. Yeah, I definitely prefer the what we got, yeah. I would like to see that alternate universe version of the movie, just to compare it, but I'm glad we have the one that we have. Well, our hindsight is 2020 question. Did the audiences and critics get this movie right when it came out? I'm going to be a little controversial. I think they overpraised it. Uh, I like this movie a lot. I don't think it's quite as innovative or as original as a lot of people said. I mean, we've already made reference to the fact that it's it's really taking a lot of its aesthetic and of its structure from anime. It's, I think, you know, if you're if you're looking at it for the philosophical part of of this, it's it's kind of just a superficial dealing with. Plato's allegory of the cave. It's it's not particularly interesting how it, it develops those philosophical themes and it almost kind of just abandons them in the third act to become just an action picture. So I've always thought that this movie is actually overrated as much as I like it. I've never thought it's an actually great movie. And uh, I remember being hated uh, back in high school for taking that position. And I imagine I'll be hated by at least one person on this podcast <laughs> for taking that position. Uh, but I would say they over they overestimated the actual quality of this movie so you think it's basically like not interesting enough on an intellectual philosophical level to be great and nor is it like a good enough action movie either or so it just kind of fails in both i think it's good i mean i I think i I think it's like a solid good movie and it never really rises above being just a solid good movie and i think if part of it's just a victim of its own maybe success a little bit right you know if it wasn't so widely hailed um I mean, even like the bullet time, it's it's just like really super slow motion. It's it's yeah. You know, I remember the in the audio commentary, John Gata, back on the original DVD, talking about how he basically changed photography forever, 
And I remember Carrie Ann Moss was, was obviously recording them, and she said to him, I think it's a direct quote. It's been a while since I listened to it, but she said, you're absolutely full of shit. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's like, yeah, it's it's just really extreme slow motion done with computer technology, right? I mean, that's that's what it is. Um, I mean, it's cool, and it obviously, you know, Zack Snyder should be really happy for it because he built an entire career out of it. But um, it doesn't strike me as that it was quite as mind-blowing as others made it out to be. I, I would generally agree with that. I mean, I, I still think it's a very good movie. I really enjoy it. Uh, I do think there were there's way too much philosophical weight kind of heaped on this film to say that it was, yeah, it was saying something very profound when... The idea is relatively straightforward. It's a great idea. It's a great science fiction concept. I mean, I love it in on, in that sense. Uh, but I also felt like the the influences were very obvious too. We should mention Hong Kong action pictures too, uh, being a huge influence here in addition to anime. Wire so, film. yeah, I mean, you had. I mean, this is really kind of like a combination of a lot of different film genres, right? Uh, into something that feels very fresh and feels very new because we hadn't really seen this this combination of things before, uh, but there was definitely a huge influence. I mean, even even right down to the Wachowskis um, hiring comic book artists to do the uh, storyboards, mm-hmm. and you can see that reflected in in the visuals. And I mean, I love Bill Pope's compositions and the way the film looks, but clearly they were modeled after comic panels. You know, a lot of these shots. And I, I think about the opening in particular with Tr- with Trinity and that one shot where she's got her her hands up, you know, uh, framing the police officers in the background. I mean, it's just like straight out of a com- comic book panel. And so it's really this hodgepodge of a lot of different influ- influences, but just done extremely well. So, uh, yeah, overrated in, in some sense. But I, I think overall uh, they got it right, you know, recognizing that, hey, this is a really compelling standalone story with um, some interesting ideas. Yeah, I think they got it right. I don't think it's overrated. Uh, Nate's full of shit. Uh, <laughs> Just like John Gata. That's right. <laughs> um, you know, it doesn't. it's not the best movie ever. Um, it's not the best science fiction movie ever. It's not the best action movie ever. But it's a hell of a good movie. It's a lot yeah. of fun. It combines all of its elements in a way that is extremely satisfying and I think it's very, very successful at everything that it's trying to do. Well, you would uh, be able to say that you were in the same category as James Cameron, who said, and I quote, it is one of the most profoundly fresh science fiction films ever made. Profoundly fresh. Well, sure. I'll defer to James. <laughs> All right, our our Stranger Things nostalgia question. What has changed from when we first saw this movie? Uh, I would say this. Um, this is, I think, a movie that has actually been made worse by having sequels. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I really wish this was just a standalone film, that there was nothing else that ever come out. I, uh, I, both The Matrix Reloaded and Resurrections, I think, are very just unnecessary cash grabs the matrix resurrections actually i i liked kind of more um not more than this but more than the the other two sequels even though i still think it was ultimately just a an effort to get some money out of a reboot right 20 some years after the fact but i think that if they if they just left this alone and let it be a standalone film 
it would work and play a lot better now because I wouldn't have all these other things that are in my mind with it that I find much less satisfying and interesting uh, than just this one movie on its own. Yeah, I think there's something to that. It's, I, I like the sequels a lot more than you. Well, at least I like Reloaded. I think Revolutions kind of sucks, although it has a really good action superhero battle at the end of it. But Reloaded, I think, has one of the greatest all-time action sequences in it with the highway chase. And it's got some... No, that, that the green screen work on that's no, so no, obvious. It's really, really good. It's really, really good. When was the last time you saw it? Just the, Actually, just this afternoon. I watched the whole trilogy oh, today. Wow, that's... <laughs> wow. That's good Holy preparation. Smokes. Take that. You were not expecting <laughs> no, to hear that answer, were you? <laughs> All right. Well, he's, he's got, got me too beat. much time on his hands. Yeah, really. Uh, yeah, the last time I watched that was just before Resurrections came out. So, yeah, you win. But, I no, I think that's a tremendous action sequence. Uh, and I think it's. I think that movie still has some interesting ideas in it. I don't really like the Zion stuff very much, but I think they expand the world in a way that's pretty interesting. But Revolutions is a stinker, and um, it does sort of make you think differently about this movie. I think their problem was the, that they decided they needed to have a trilogy, and then both of those movies came out at the same time and were filmed, well, you know, nine months apart or whatever, and were filmed back to back. And they should have just made a sequel, done through every idea they had into it, and then not felt like they needed a trilogy. Maybe they would have ended up making a third or a fourth film somewhere down the line. But at the, at the same time, if they hadn't made any sequels to it, it'd be like, that's the greatest sequel missed opportunity in history. How could they not make a sequel to The Matrix? That movie was so great. But it does end, you know, where it kind of needs to ends. end. The story yeah. ends. It's over. But still, you're not going to make the sequel where Neo can fly around and do whatever? The cash train. You can just, it, it, it asks uh, the studio, and they cannot say you no. you got to give the people what they want, man. Matt, have you got anything? Anything that's changed since when you first saw the movie? I, I think just recognizing the influences more. You know, at the time of seeing this, I enjoyed movies, but I wasn't, like, into movies as much as I, I was in the years after. And... Uh, seeing more anime in particular and Hong Kong films, it really became very clear, you know, how much those genres influenced this film. So probably that more than anything else. It, it didn't decrease my appreciation or enjoyment of this, though. It wasn't like, oh, you know, I, I can't enjoy The Matrix now because they're clearly ripping off X, Y, and Z. Uh, I, I still like the fact that they're taking these influences and combining them in a new way. And our Walt Kowalski get off my lawn question, what would Gen Z think if this movie were released today? Brian, what do you say? I think people would still love it. It's a, it's a great time, great ideas, good action movie, great action movie. So, yeah, I think for all the reasons they loved it uh, back then, they'd still love it. Maybe, you know, maybe the, the payphones haven't aged very well. So, Well, it's like it's set in a different era. Once you kind of get the... You know, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It definitely marks it as a different time than we live now, but I think you could get away yeah, with it. I agree. Yeah, I mean, I not really anything to add to Brian, I guess. I, I think it would still work very well for the current generation and uh, even resonate uh, even better today, maybe than 1999 on a lot of levels. Uh, I think people are just more, much more aware of technology and, you know, the filter of social media and how we're 
all living in sort of a constructed reality to some extent uh, because of technology. So, and some people actually think we really do live in a simulation. So <laughs> there is that as well. Uh, so I still think this film would resonate on, on quite a few levels. Yeah, I think it would be something that people would like, uh, especially as you were alluding to, Matt, the, the skepticism or the, the wariness people have about information they're receiving and believing in things that are presented to you, I think would click differently for an audience now than it did in 1999. The only thing I can think is, would a movie like this, if it got made today, be able to get traction? I mean, would audiences actually be willing to take a risk to go see it? Because so much of the Gen Z seems to be going to established properties. Uh, would this movie be able to get a hold of it, of a group uh, and actually resonate? Because uh, I'm assuming stuff like this probably still is getting made and is just being buried under a mountain of content. That would be my only question about if it came out today. It would almost have to be made by a famous director, I think, for people to uh, to notice a standalone property. You think about Oppenheimer and how well that did because it was Christopher Nolan. So if a, a big-name director championed an original story like this, I, I think it would do well. But, yeah, I do wonder how much it would resonate on its own. Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, you, you say that there's – you assume that there's stuff like this that's being made that's getting buried. You mean for TV? Kind of TV shows that are of Or even quality? just like stuff that gets filmed but then just gets dumped onto Netflix or some other streaming service that you're like, uh, maybe. I yeah. mean, like, I keep seeing like all these titles for different movies that I'm like, huh, I wonder what that is. Yeah. I generally assume that stuff like that will rise above and, and get an audience and get some word of mouth, but that's not necessarily always going to be true. The recommendation engine uh, perhaps fails at times and, and you know, stuff does end up getting buried. I mean, what's the, what's the last example of a non, you know, Christopher Nolan or, or um, you know, even Barbie was, had the name Barbie attached to it and, and the right. marketing muscle behind it associated with that so can we think of the last non-big director sort of original movie to gain traction at the box office <laughs> i mean put you on the spot like let's pause and <laughs> go wikipedia yeah i mean i i i, I honestly i, I can't yeah, uh, can you think of something no no i mean i can't off the top of my head yeah no. yeah not right away. i mean we, we might have to go back like as far as like the the 2000s yeah. to, to find Search, that. Insert some interstitial music here while we uh, while we go Google something and come back and, <laughs> and tell our audience what it is. Gravity. Maybe Gravity be the last one? Because Alfonso Cuaron was not a... Um, I, don't think he, I don't think he'd be like a director like a Nolan that you'd say. Right. So that was a pretty big When hit. was that? 2013. It's been a while. That'd be my thought. Maybe something like uh, a quiet place, or I don't know if we can include oh, John Krasinski horror maybe. films. Yeah, yeah, that was sort of a phenomenon. That's a really good example. How much did that make? A couple hundred million at least. So that's pretty solid. All right. Well, on to our next question: the Kevin Feige franchise question. This one I think answers itself. Does this movie deserve a belated sequel? What it deserves is to have us go back in time and stop the sequels that were made. <laughs> yeah. Give it, yeah, I can't argue give, with that. Give it the sequels it deserves. 
And finally, our producer's choice question. Who would you replace in the cast or crew? This was a tough one for me uh, because everyone seems to be pretty iconic in their parts. I can't think of somebody other than the Wachowskis. This is clearly a, a brainchild of theirs, so you wouldn't want to hand it off to a different director from their screenplay. And I don't see anybody else writing the script, you know, the way they did. Um, the only thing I could come up with was Jennifer Connolly as Trinity instead of Carrie Ann Moss. Now, it's not that I don't like Carrie Ann Moss in this part. I think she's really good in it. And obviously it's hard to think of someone else in the role, but the love story is pretty thin. And you're basically just, I mean, you know she loves him, and it's like she's a love interest and it's going to develop that way because you've, if you've seen the story before, you kind of know how these work. But it really isn't apparent within the world itself why she loves him or what he's done uh, to make her actually truly love him. You know, she just does it because the plot requires it. And somehow through the power of her kiss brings him back to life, both in the real world and in the Matrix. That's a hell of a kiss. That's all. Coincidental I timing, I think. That's <laughs> so, all. But... Uh, I wonder if Jennifer Connelly not only would have been really able good in the part. I think she's a really good actress. I think she's really beautiful. So you'd be able to capture like the just the overall qualities that I think you get out of Carrie Ann Moss in that regard. But I think she also would have probably pushed for her character better and developed that aspect better in the movie if she'd been cast instead. That she might have had uh, with her own background and with her own reputation, having been a little bit more of a star, but not too big of a star she might have been able to actually help the film in the writing of it, the working of it, to develop her character just a little better for that love story to, to land a little stronger. That's the only thing I came up with. Did you guys come up with anybody? Well, do you think she could have brought uh, the same kind of physicality to the role? I assume she could have. I mean, she's. I mean, if she goes through the training, they all had to go through all this they, training. Yeah, so. that's true. That's true. Yeah, it's not like they all were trained uh, kung fu experts before they filmed it. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I, uh, I had a real hard time with this one. I, Marlon Brando's Morpheus popped into my head, but then I... <laughs> <laughs> Except he couldn't do any of the fighting. <laughs> yeah, he would, he would just more, stand there, and he'd be like, you know, Master Splinter. Uh, what, if, what if we did Marlon Brando is Morpheus in the, in the real world, <laughs> but his projected image of himself is Lawrence Fishburne? <laughs> or, or just like... The version of him from Apocalypse Now, or something. We could, uh, we could have a deep fake Marlon Brando. I, no, I, you know, Connolly's not not a bad idea. I, I, I just I, these roles are so iconic at this point. You know, Will Smith and Val Kilmer yeah. aside, I, I really just have a hard time kind of forcing anybody else into this film. You know, I think if you're going to do it, you do it with a with the more um, kind of surrounding supporting players. You know, you could you could have some more fun maybe casting Tank or Dozer or Switch, um, Mouse. Although the kid who plays Mouse is pretty funny with his with his porn lady in the red dress. Um, you know the the boss who's chewing uh, Thomas Anderson's head off in the office early on. You know, you could have some fun with some of these roles, and they're all well. I don't know if they're all unknowns, but None of them are are very well known, at least. Yeah, yeah no, it's it's a credit to the movie. It's it's hard to think of many things you could change out or swap out and have it still work. So that is to its credit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's like top 
basically the career peak for a, for a lot of these actors, right? I mean, Keanu, uh, Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie on Carrie on Moss. I mean, their careers don't really. I mean, you know, they just they just don't reach peaks like this later on in their careers. Well, this is a good one to start off 1999. This is a big year for movies. 1999 is a truly great year, so we're going to have plenty of uh, plenty of options for us to go through this year. Hey, Nate, are we yes. going to party like it's 1999? Oh, we're partying like it's 1999. <laughs> yes! It opened up alongside the teen comedy, How to Leisure Guy, excuse me, um, Shoot, now I just I lost where, it, where I had the just, just, info. You got to do the uh, the Bill O'Reilly thing. <laughs> Fuck, <laughs> fucking thing, <laughs> fucking sucks. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>